From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Major League Baseball's All-Star Game is next week at Coors Field, and the festivities kick off this weekend. We'll talk with the official scorer for Sunday's All-Star Futures Game, an exhibition for top minor league prospects. She's breaking barriers. Plus, a baseball card on display in Denver that is so valuable it's being transported by armored car. It's perfect. The mother didn't throw it away, and the kids didn't play with it. And every corner is like razor sharp. Then, how do you train for a triathlon at sea level in Mile High, Colorado? We'll talk with an athlete from Carbondale who's headed to Tokyo for the Paralympics. And Claire Boyles was a farmer in rural Colorado when she started writing short stories about economic and environmental justice in the American West and the ties that bind people to land. It has been an extraordinary year for CPR News, providing news coverage important to all Coloradans. Hi, I'm Stuart Vanderwilt, president of CPR. Your support has fueled and inspired our news team, recently recognized with more than two dozen local, regional, and national awards, including eight regional Edward R. Murrow Awards and a National Press Foundation Award for mental health reporting. These accomplishments were made possible by your support. You inspire us every day. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Bring on the All-Stars. The spectacle begins this weekend. Major League Baseball's Midsummer Classic returns to Denver for the first time in more than two decades. Politics aside about why it was pulled from Georgia and moved to Colorado, Denver Mayor Michael Hancock expects big things from the city and the state. When we do these sort of things, particularly when we get on the national stage like this, really the international stage, um, it's very important for our image, for our branding, and uh, the the expectation that we will have long-term boost to our tourism numbers and investments in hospitality going forward. So we have no uh, short of expectations, uh, uh, short of those expectations after the Major League Baseball uh, All-Star Game is here. Uh, We expect that our tourism will go through a boom and people will want to continue to visit our great city. The All-Star Game itself is Tuesday night, but there is a lot happening before that, like a street fest in Lodo's Baseball District, Monday's Home Run Derby, and the All-Star Futures Game, Sunday in Coors Field. The official scorer for that contest is Denver native Jillian Geib, who continues a record-setting run that the Rockies can only dream of duplicating. Jillian, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Scoring the Futures game is a milestone, but as we alluded to, you might be used to breaking barriers at this point. Earlier this season, on June 1st, also at Coors Field, you became just the fourth woman to serve as the official scorer for a major league game. I think even the most casual follower of baseball is familiar with the idea of runs, hits, errors, but they probably aren't aware that there is someone responsible for determining what's what during a game. Why don't you give us a brief explainer of what the official scorer does? Yeah, so the official um, scorer's job is essentially just to keep track of all of the play events that happen during the game, but also to make decisions, as you alluded to. So, um, you know, basically determining whether something is a hit or an error, um, and then also determining pitching lines um, and the winning pitcher versus losing pitcher, um, saves and things like that. As we mentioned, you are believed to be the fourth woman to do this. And I understand that when it happened the first time in 1882, 
it was actually kept a secret. The scorecard didn't show Eliza Green. It showed E.G. Green. And I'll say that you've scored two games this season, most recently on June 28th in a game between the Rockies and the Pittsburgh Pirates. Why do you think it's been such a rarity for women to be official scorers? To be honest, I think it's it has a lot to do with the fact that women don't play baseball. Um, and my, my in my experience, I started playing softball when I was younger. Or I actually started playing baseball, rather, and they forced me to play softball because women, girls, uh, weren't really regarded as equals in the baseball um, side of things. So I think just even stemming from that, women don't play baseball and, you know, they don't maybe know as much about baseball is the common thought. So how did you get into scoring? So I have been working for Major League Baseball now for about 10 years and on the, you know, the stat side. Um, I initially maybe wanted to be a broadcast journalist, wanted to be a sideline reporter, um, eventually just kind of realized that that wasn't the path for me, but maybe just um, keeping track of, of stats was more my speed. Um, and I've always been really fascinated in, in the little minute details of the game. Um, and so just kind of have worked different stats positions throughout the ballpark in um, in Major League Baseball. And when one of my coworkers resigned, who was an official scorer um, for several years, they kind of brought my name up and said, well, Jillian's done everything else, so why not throw her in the ring for official scorer? And you're one of three people scoring games for the Rockies this season. And like you said, it's just one of a number of things that you do at Coors. Tell me a little bit more about what's appealing to you about stats and those little minute details in the game. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not one of those people who memorizes stats. You know, I'm not one of those people who knows the batting average of every single player known to man. Um, But what I think makes baseball really fascinating is situational type things, Um, you know, whether to you know, bunt for a base hit or sacrifices, sacrifice flies, little little minute details like that part of the game are just really fascinating to me. Um, and then also just in-game um, situations, for example, deciding whether something is a hit versus an error. So many things go into that, um, even to the point where with all of this new information that we have because of the StatCast um, data, that that comes into play as well. Um, and when you see, you know, a ball's coming off the bat at 104 miles an hour versus 80 miles an hour, that's going to completely change the way a fielder is fielding the ball. And that's going to completely change the way that the game plays out. So I just find all those little things really fascinating. It sounds like so much has to go into every decision. Before you got this gig, you had to pass a test, a timed exam, and it has all these quirks and nuances of the game. I mean, baseball's rule book is almost 200 pages long. How daunting was that test in the process of becoming an official scorer? Incredibly daunting. I mean, um, I had actually taken it once before just kind of as a trial um you know, they were testing out the test, essentially, just to see how difficult it was. Um, And so in having taken it once before, I just knew how daunting it was. And then knowing that I needed to pass it um, with a certain score was really pretty scary. Um, But I spent a lot of time preparing and I had a really great mentor who's scored over, you know, 1200 games at Coors Field. So he really helped me a lot to kind of zone in on specific details of the game that I really needed to be familiar with. But to be honest, I'm still learning. I'm still seeing plays that I've never seen before um, and scoring plays that I've never seen before. And I just think that I'm adding to my library and will continue to do so over the hopefully thousands of games that I will score. Like what? What are you still learning? So actually, for example, one of the games that I scored last week in the Pirates series, um, there was a strikeout. So a swinging strikeout. The catcher dropped the ball. So, of course, the batter is going to run to first base um, and the catcher kind of misfielded it. So he sort of grabbed the ball but dropped it. And so in that situation, it's a strikeout 
with an error on the catcher. And that was something that I actually had official scorers reach out to me afterward being like, wow, you handled that really quickly. Like, I don't even know how I would have handled that um, in that situation. So it's just like, honestly, it goes, goes back to instincts. What do you say to people who say that baseball is boring? It doesn't have enough action. I hear that all the time. I think it has to do with how long the games are. I think, you know, fans are not tempted to sit there for three hours and really focus in on what's happening in the game. Uh, But to me, I have watched thousands of baseball games. And still to this day, when I go on vacation or when I go somewhere new, I want to go to the ballpark and watch a game. I just, yeah, it's pretty funny. I just try to tell people you're you're not looking at the little details of the game. You're not seeing what's actually happening. Um, And, you know, I guess I see it differently. I mean, controversy, it can also be a big part of this job, too. You mentioned those scorers who reached out to you said they don't know how quickly they would have handled it. So this decision to rule a bat ball, a hit or an error because of constant, it can cause consternation among fans and more importantly, managers and coaches and the players involved there. It's not uncommon for someone in the dugout to call up to the press box while the game is going on to argue that a ruling by the scorer was wrong. Is that something of a badge of honor for a scorer? And has it happened to you yet? I think it is kind of a badge of honor. Um, It hasn't happened to me yet. I did have my first call reversal um, in the last homestand, but um, it definitely is not, you know, it's a lot of times um, scores will have to stand by their decisions and, you know, they're open to people challenging their rulings and they're also opening to defending their rulings and, um, you know, just saying this is why I made this call and it's the right call. You know, we have we have instincts as official scores that brought us to this position and we have to trust those instincts. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that call reversal in the Pirates game. Yeah, so there was a um, kind of a one hopper um, ball hit to the second baseman. And, you know, my initial read on it, my, you know, within the first 15, 20 seconds was just that the fielder was perfectly positioned to make that play. Um, he just kind of let it drop and didn't make the play. Um, but then, you know, decided to look at the stat cast data as we do, you know, in any situation that we make a call that could kind of go either way. We look at all the information that's available to us. We look at replays. Um, and I saw that it was coming off the bat at 104 miles an hour. And as I mentioned before, that makes a huge difference um, versus a ball that's coming off the bat at 80 miles an hour. I also was able to see on the replays um, that it kind of hit the lip of the grass a little bit. And so that also impacted the path of the ball. Um, and so a couple batters later, you know, nobody even asked me to review it. I just announced um, upon further review and changing this ruling from an error to a hit. This game against the Pirates, it was also notable because it almost became the second no-hitter thrown in Rockies history. It also would have been the Rockies' first at Coors Field. Pitcher Ermin Marquez hadn't allowed a Pittsburgh player to hit safely through eight innings. Then this happened. And Kai Tom breaks up the no-hitter in the ninth inning! Obviously, Marquez and the Rockies are feeling the pressure when it comes with potentially being part of history. What was the game like for you? Were you worried about perhaps having to make an unpopular scoring decision there? Absolutely. Um, As an official scorer, you always kind of worry about that. You don't want to be the one making a call that's going to change you know, a player's career, um, potentially. So definitely was a worry. It's also kind of baseball is a hugely superstitious game. So it's not something that you really talk about in the moment because you don't want to be the person to quote unquote, you know, break the no hitter just by talking about it. So um, 
it was definitely a strange feeling in the press box. Everyone was kind of looking at me, eyeing me, you know, to see what I was going to do. But um, didn't end up uh, coming down to any of my rulings. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, as we mentioned earlier, you do more than score Rockies games. And while you can often be found at Coors, technically you don't work for the team, but for Major League Baseball and data operations. Tell me a little bit more about what that work involves. Yeah, um, I pretty much do... Um, all of the different positions that go into um, our data collections. And and we send our data to a lot of different places. You know, for example, if you're watching a game online, um, you're watching it through an app called MLB Game Day, and there is somebody who's literally feeding all of that information to that app. So whether it's a ball blocked in the dirt, whether it's a swinging strike, um, you know, single with an RBI, all of those things, literally every single play event, there's somebody feeding that into the app so that when you watch at home, you can see exactly what happened. Um, So that's one of the positions that I work. And then also um, our data um, is sent out to betting apps. Um, and it's important now, especially in the last couple of years, that betting has become more popular um, and has become legalized, that that information is is in real time, you know, that they have someone at the ballpark actually entering um, different play events that contribute to that betting. So I understand that all of this got started because of your love of baseball and a desire to maybe become an announcer or reporter. But when baseball isn't in season, you actually teach fifth grade at Willow Elementary School here in Denver. Can your students compute batting averages and interpret data? Do they find that really cool that you do it? Honestly, my my students do not understand what I do. <laughs> <laughs> I try to keep it pretty simple and just say I work Rockies games. Um, and they're always saying, you know, Miss Guybe, I was looking for you on the broadcast. You know, if they turn on the Rockies game, they're always looking for me. And I try to tell them, well, I'm probably not going to be on TV, but you can guarantee I'm there. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely use it as a leverage point with my students. Um, they always get really into it. And I definitely talk about baseball whenever I can. And I use that definitely as motivation for them to work on their math skills, their <laughs> math facts. <laughs> I'm curious, can you casually watch a game since you've been the scorer? That is a good question. Um, no, is, is the answer. I'm always in constant communication um, with my friends who are also official scorers. I have a good friend, as I mentioned, a mentor who I watch games with. And even when we're not together, we're texting each other. Did you see that play? What would you have ruled that? Um, you know, and just it's it's hard not to see the game through this lens now. And as we said, Sunday is Major League Baseball's Futures game, which features up and coming players from around the minor leagues. How excited are you to get this opportunity to be the official scorer? I'm so excited. To be honest, this whole season has been just a a dream come true, a whirlwind. You know, like you mentioned, I can't believe that I almost scored the first no-hitter in Rockies history at Coors Field, and now I get to score the Futures game. I mean, it just is absolutely surreal, and it's a dream come true. I could not be more excited um, just to be part of the All-Star festivities. You know, if I weren't scoring, I would be there. I would be there watching these games. So the fact that I get to actually sit in the press box, best seat in the house, and score a game is unbelievable. Obviously, you are a big baseball fan. Is there anyone that you're particularly excited to see play in the game? Um, honestly, I, I'm really excited to see the um, the home run derby because Trevor Story is in, is in the derby. Um, and I'm just kind of excited to see all of the you know, all of the um, excitement that goes along with the game, just really the variety of fans that show up. That's what I'm most excited about. Um, but definitely excited to see all of these really big up and comers in, in high school um, who are probably going to be first round draft picks. You know, I am excited for that in general. 
after the Futures game and all of the All-Star festivities are over, the second half of the season begins. When are you scoring another Rockies game? I will not be scoring another Rockies game until August. Um, July, we only had nine home games, so it was a very you know, minimal opportunities for me to score, but I will definitely be scoring a couple more in August. And then you can guarantee I will be at Rockies games, um, working my other positions up until then. Jillian, thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. Thank you so much for talking with me. Earlier this year, Jillian Guy became just the fourth woman in history to serve as the official scorer for a major league baseball game. On Sunday, she'll score MLB's Futures game. She joined us to discuss her groundbreaking career. It's considered the holy grail of baseball cards, a mint condition 1952 Topps Mickey Mantle card. There's a fly ball out to right field. That ball is going, going, it is gone. That's the legendary New York Yankees center fielder slugging a home run during the 1952 World Series. The Mickey Mantle card is so rare and armored car will be used to bring it to the Hall of Legends exhibit across from Coors Field in downtown Denver this weekend as part of Major League Baseball's All-Star Week. We spoke with the owner of the card, Marshall Fogel, in 2018 about why this mantle card is so valuable. It's perfect. Think about the fact that when Topps Baseball Card Company, located at the time in Brooklyn, New York, where else, they would stack sheets of baseball cards, and then they would use a guillotine-type knife to cut the sheets into single cards. Well, those sheets would slip. The bottom line is the mantle card was cut perfectly. The mother didn't throw it away, and the kids didn't play with it. And every corner is like razor sharp. The beautiful coloring of it, it's just, it's its the holy grail, as you said, in your opening. Uh, when they made baseball cards before 1952, they were like paintings and artwork. 1952 was the first time in the modern era where they actually took photographs of the players uh-huh. and placed them on the card. And that example is the 1952 Mickey Mantle card, which is uh, the most popular of all the cards made for him. The Mickey Mantle card is worth millions, but it holds priceless personal value for Fogel. I had the pleasure of meeting him and spending time with Mickey Mantle uh, before he passed away. And I've had a lot of Yankee players at my home, Don Larson, Ralph Terry, Ryan Duran, Gil McDougal, and they spoke about Mantle. And they said when he took his shirt off, he was built like nobody else. He was powerfully built. He was very nice to everybody, handsome as well. And the great story they told me is that when Mantle won the Triple Crown in 1956, he went to George Weiss, the general manager, and asked for a raise. And general manager Weiss said, you're not getting a raise. We're going to cut your salary. And Mantle said, why? And Weiss said, well, you'll never have another year like you did. Mantle ended up proving that GM wrong and got his raise. Fogel lives in Denver. His collection goes beyond the love of the game. It's also a way to document history. Among his memorabilia, a bat that belonged to Lou Gehrig. Gehrig was forced to retire at age 36 because of ALS, the disease that's often known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Here's a clip from a report that included his famous 1939 farewell speech. 
First baseman Lou Gehrig hung up an amazing mark by playing in 2,130 consecutive games. Then a fatal disease attacked baseball's Iron Man. In Yankee Stadium, touched to tears by the tribute, Gehrig made his last public appearance. For the past two weeks, you've been reading about a bad break. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. When Lou Gehrig gave that speech that included, I'm the luckiest man on the face of the earth, that was not prepared. He wasn't going to say anything until the manager, Joe McCarthy, said, Lou, you're in front of 60,000 people. You have to say something. By the way, what's also interesting is there are photographs of Garrick and Ruth together. Now, in those days, men didn't put their arms around each other in front of people. But these pictures of Ruth hugging Garrick, putting his hands on his face, is a demonstration of of how much love and respect Ruth had for Garrick uh, and and the emotion that he felt uh, knowing that Garrick was was ill and wasn't going to make it. Uh, Garrick's a very special person. On one hand, both Ruth and Garrick were famous players, but Ruth was was jovial and, and flamboyant, where Garrick, the iron horse, was quiet and serene, yet both were loved and respected by the fans in New York and across the country. Um, so I have the bat when Garrick retired and lived in New Rochelle, New York. He had a bat, his probably his last bat, in his closet. And a young boy came to the apartment where Garrick lived, and Garrick gave him his last bat. Mm. What a humble experience. Not only did he give him the bat, but he wrote on it to Jerry, may you take better advantage of this than I did, signed it Lou Gehrig. Uh, when you hold something like that from a man who, who you respect, uh, it sends shivers up your spine. In the end, Fogel says collecting baseball memorabilia is a way to preserve a game that gives him hope. Baseball, it reminds us of the past. You know, America's ruled by steamrollers, but baseball remains the game. It brings people together. Uh, it is heaven. It's a perfect place to be. Marshall Fogel reflecting on his love for baseball with us in 2018. Fogel's rare mint condition 1952 Mickey Mantle baseball card will be on display starting Saturday. It's part of History Colorado's Hall of Legends exhibit directly across from Coors Field for the Major League Baseball All-Star Week. The All-Star Game is Tuesday night. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with an athlete who's not letting blindness get in the way of his Olympic dreams. I'm Avery Lill. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Major League Baseball's All-Stars are in Denver. With so much going on, what to do and where to go. All you need to know is on CPR News and at Denverite.com. 
Also, the history and future of America's greatest pastime, and the outsized role this game is playing in national conversations about politics and the pandemic. Those stories right here on CPR News, and an assist planning a very baseball weekend at denverite.com. CPR News and Denverite, powered by Colorado Public Radio. Kyle Kuhn is going to the Paralympics. The triathlete from Carbondale has about six weeks to prepare before the Paralympic Games begin in late August. He's one of two men who are visually impaired paratriathletes who will represent the U.S. in Tokyo this summer. Kyle, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Avery, for having me. Great to be back. This is a long time coming. You were a Paralympic hopeful before the Games were postponed last summer. Where were you when the USA Triathlon announced the paratriathlon team on Monday? <laughs> yeah, I was uh, I was hanging out, just uh, driving up to uh, Snowmass, um, you know, just outside of uh, Carbondale. I, uh, um, when I got the call, we were just getting ready to go for a, a little hike as I was here um, in, in Carbondale, just visiting my family after the Continental Championships. And uh, I I got the call, and my uh, our prog- our high performance director uh, strung it out for me a little bit, but. Uh, <laughs> That she eventually she eventually said we we want to we want to invite you to to represent Team USA in Tokyo and I was just I was I was speechless and, and thrilled and, and stunned to get that news. It was a good hike after that. How does it, it feel to be going to Tokyo? Uh, it's it's uh, it's been quite the whirlwind of, uh, of the last seventy two ninety six hours or so. Like I'm I'm still. I'm still pinching myself. I'm I'm still asking myself, is it is it real or am I still dreaming and am I am I waking up soon? So I but it's uh, it feels great. You and I talked last June. You just moved out of the US Olympic and Paralympic Training Center at that point. It's in Colorado Springs. You're an athlete in residence there, but because of COVID restrictions, you'd been training in your room for weeks, away from teammates and out of the pool. Tell me a little bit about this last year. How have your training and competitions changed along with the pandemic? Yeah, so the the, the training it, itself um you know, we it was hard to get back to, to training. Eventually, we were able to get back to the training center, and eventually we were able to start training together as a team. But one of the things that I think really stood out uh, over this past year was um, we were all, uh, when we all got back together, uh, my teammates and I, we just had this overwhelming sense of gratitude uh, toward each other and being able to train with each other and push each other to, to higher and higher levels. Um, and that is, that has manifested itself in us raising our game and performing at super high levels in the, in the competitions and the races that we've had the last few months. Um, so it, it, you know, COVID restrictions have definitely, you know, they're still in place, especially at, at races, especially internationally, um, and, and still at the training center. But, uh, but, uh, it's just been a, it's been overwhelming gratitude and, and just, relief to uh to be training with my teammates again and pushing ourselves to all new levels you've obviously had a solid competition season leading up to the paralympics you finished first at a triathlon in florida earlier this year and you're actually in japan for another race in may what was that experience like oh my gosh uh yeah yokohama japan uh we we raced there at uh at one of the staple events the world Tra- uh, the world triathlon para series in yokohama and um yeah, that was an experience um you know japan uh, you know is still 
you know, still having a lot of uh, issues with with uh, with COVID nineteen, and um, we had to get some special exceptions to be able to to race and compete. And we lived in a this bubble environment where we weren't allowed to leave our hotel um, uh, unescorted, and we could only go to certain places to train and and race and. Uh, we had to have all these different apps on our phone um, so that we we could be tracked, and we had to do a lot of symptom tracking and, and several you know COVID nineteen tests as well. Uh, so that was quite an experience, but you know it it you know it worked out. We uh, we went over, we we raced, we competed. Um, I was able to to pull down my first major international win on the international circuit at, at that race. So it was a it was a huge uh, huge victory for me, and and we had a lot of a lot of victories on, on, you know, for Team USA as well while we were there. You navigate biking, swimming, and running with a guide. You and Andy Potts teamed up last summer. Now Potts is the first Olympic triathlete to also be a guide in the Paralympics. He was obviously familiar with racing, but what is it like for you to train someone how to guide? You know, it's, it's, it's interesting because um, really all I, all I do is is I uh, I tell my guides and, and the people that I'm training to guide I'm like look you know how to you know how to guide it's it's just a matter of what you see it just has to go from your brain out of your mouth now you just got to verbalize it so you know you see you know what's coming up in you know in a few steps you just got to speak it out loud that's all um, <laughs> so it's 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 pretty uh it's pretty straightforward and pretty simple and Andy took to it um, he took to it real quick and. Uh, we've had some really incredible races, and we train together a lot now. So it's it's been awesome, uh, you know, getting to tap into his wisdom and knowledge, and you know, learn from him in terms of racing, and and uh, and then also uh, you know him learning, uh, you know, him learning from me on on guiding and and the importance of communication as well. Yeah, it sounds like a whole lot of communication. You've competed in different sports throughout your life, and you picked up triathlon a little more than five years ago. What drew you to it? You know, triathlon is, it's so fascinating because it's, it's swimming, it's cycling and it's running, but really what it is, it's not a, it's not a swim race. It's not a bike race. It's not a run race. It's a swim, bike, run race. And, and I love the, I love just putting those all together. And like, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not the strongest swimmer. I'm not the strongest cyclist. I'm not the strongest runner, but we, you know, when I, I love being able to put that puzzle together and figure out how could I, you know, swim bike and run as fast as I possibly could and and so that's really what what drew me to it the challenge the the ability to just put all of that together yeah you've got a little over six weeks before you race how are you using that time so uh, so I'll be heading back to the uh the Olympic and Paralympic Training Center um here on Sunday and uh Monday we'll uh we'll start the we'll start the build we'll uh We'll work on some, uh, just work on honing the, honing the skills. Um, we've got a built up a lot of fitness over the, over the last few years. And, and now it's just a matter of, um, you know, honing that edge and, uh, finding, finding that edge that'll, that'll push us over the top to, uh, uh, for us to be, you know, considered metal contenders and, and ensure that we have the best race possible, um, come race day. Are you concerned that Japan is in a state of emergency when it comes to COVID-19? You know, it's, you know, it, it's, it's tough. It's challenging. Um, you know, Japan being in a state of emergency, 
Um, but you know, we also we also recognize that a lot of safety precautions have been put in place, and and we're we're confident in the in you know the International Paralympic Committee and you know the the Japanese government and and our own safety precautions. Um, and and look, as as para athletes, we're we're used to adapting. Um, you know, we we improvise, we adapt, and we overcome. And um, you know, we're we're excited. Um, and we're, we're ready to face any challenges that, that may come our way. You're also adapting. Tokyo is more hot and humid than Colorado, and it is at sea level. You're only going to be in the country a few days before your competition. How do you get ready for those changes? Oh, man, heat and humidity. And whew, that's, that's, it's a challenge, that's for sure. So actually what we're going to do is we are going to, uh, you know, we're going to fly from Colorado on August 12th. We're going to go to, uh, we're going to stage in Kona, Hawaii and, um, for, for 10 days. So we're going to get some heat and humidity training, um, in Hawaii. And then we'll fly from, uh, from Hawaii to Tokyo, uh, uh, just under a week before the, uh, before our race. And, and, uh, we'll just, we'll be ready to, we'll be ready to rock and roll. And in the meantime, there's a special room at the Olympic and Paralympic Training Center that helps, right? It, it does. So, yeah, so um, we'll, we'll be in the, uh, it's called the High Altitude Training Chamber, and uh, we, can, uh, we can use um, uh, some controls and stuff to adjust the heat and the humidity in that room um, to, like, Tokyo conditions, and we can actually bring it down to sea level. Uh, so we'll do uh, one or two sessions in there. Uh, per week as we uh, as we get closer and closer, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, it's, it, it'll be uh, it'll definitely it'll be it'll help to for, you know when we get to Kona to, to be less of a shock, and then uh, mm-hmm. you know, we'll be training every day in Kona, and then uh, when we get to Tokyo, hopefully we'll be uh, nice and adapted um, by the time race day rolls around. That is cool technology. Well, thank you, Kyle, so much, and good luck at the games. Kyle Kuhn is a paratriathlete who is blind. He'll represent the U.S. at the Paralympic Games in Tokyo. The games begin after the Olympics on August 24th. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Claire Boyles began writing short stories while she farmed outside of Greeley, Colorado. She and her family sold their farm eight years ago, but she kept writing. The result is Sight Fidelity, Boyles' debut collection of short stories. Your stories are rooted in rural Colorado and Nevada. Before we get into your fiction, I want to know how these places shaped you. Tell me about why you bought a farm near Greeley in 2008. My husband and I grew up around our grandparents' small-scale farms, and we were just interested in um, growing things and growing food and being part of a local food shed. And so when we were looking for land with water rights, we found land out there east of Greeley near Gill, sort of north of Cozy. And what did you grow? Uh, We grew vegetables of really all kinds of vegetables and specialty grown cut flowers. And we raised a few chickens and pigs as well. Now, you've lived in Colorado since you were a teenager. So what did farming teach you about this place that you didn't already know? Farming really opened my eyes to the ways that um, I'd say like state policies and government policies and the things that I maybe knew about but hadn't been paying close attention to really mattered for people and families and farmers and uh, relationships. 
So you bought this farm just before the recession began in 2008. Tell me a little bit about your journey on this farm. Um, I would call those years, I mean, looking back on them, I think we think of them as a really beautiful struggle. Um, Mm. They were difficult financially, um, but they were wonderful in terms of the community we were able to build around the farm. We had really supportive customers and it, it felt really... Um, It was just a really special thing to be able to grow that kind of food. So tell me how your collection of short stories, Site Fidelity, grew out of those experiences as a farmer. Um, I started writing a blog. I mean, it was 2008 when we started farming. That's kind of what people did. (laughs) And um, I just realized that a lot of the things that I was writing about in terms of, you know, land use and how we relate to land Um, maybe could be explored more broadly and in more interesting ways in fiction. So rather than just writing about our experience on the blog, I started um, writing about those things in short stories. So let's dive into your fiction. The title of your collection, Site Fidelity, it comes from an ecological concept. In that sense, it's a population's tendency to return to a place. The story Ledgers is about Nora. She's an ornithologist who comes home to the farm where she grew up to help take care of her father after he's had a stroke. How does Site Fidelity of the Gunnison Sage Grouse drive Nora in that story? Um, I think it, it resonates. This concept of site fidelity resonated with me um, in that places that I've lived have become very close to my heart. And also just in the sense that if you love a place that much and you continue to return to it and it is somehow damaged or can't support you anymore, that's just a really dangerous, you know, the Gunnison sage grouse does not adapt well if their breeding lacks that they return to are damaged. Um, and so it just, it just became sort of a, a metaphor that made sense for the human connection to the land that we live on. And I think Nora uh, is maybe in that sense closer to my own, uh, closer to who I am maybe in my own thoughts than a lot of my other characters are. So in this story, Nora is really driven by protecting this lek or this breeding ground for the Gunnison sage grouse. And she's really concerned that damage to it by farming or by grazing, um, could really damage their, the, the species and its ability to survive. Would you read a bit of that story for us? Sure. Um, The passage I've chosen is a passage where Nora is trying to get a rancher named Henson who uh, bought Nora's family's land to protect the Gunnison sage grouse who live there. So this is a section from Ledgers. The land didn't come with an easement. The sunset was fading. Henson turned on the porch light which tells me your dad knew better than to invite the government up here, give up good grazing for the sake of some ridiculous birds. Pop left that land alone because it was the right thing to do, I said. He loves those birds. Henson snorted. He was dodging the government or I'll eat my hat. No easement, no mandate. Old ranchers are all the same. You know that, or you should. I knocked my empty beer can over when I stood up to leave. I'm sorry. I don't really want to say no to you, Nora, Henson said. The apology seemed sincere. I've put all I have into this place. I won't risk any limited use. Tears prickled the back of my eyes as I drove back toward Gunnison, because Henson was right. I knew better about Pop. He only saved the birds to indulge me. The minute I left him, he let them go. 
Tell me a little bit more about that tension that you're driving at when Henson tells Nora all old ranchers are the same and she realizes that the reason her father had put some energy into protecting the birds while she was there is just because he cared about her. So there's this tension between the economics of surviving off the land and caring about the land and its broader ecosystems. Yeah, I mean, I think that none of these issues are simple. They're complicated and they're thorny and they're tangled together with not just human relationships to the land, but also like economic survival and humans' relationships, you know, the family's relationships with each other and what people care about and what they might choose to care about based on what the people they love can teach them and show them. In Ledger's, Nora feels the weight of protecting these birds whose habitat is threatened. Claire, how much of that is a weight that you also feel telling these stories? Um, in Ledger's, one of the the real life stories that inspired Ledger's is actually something I included in the story itself, that the Blue Mesa Reservoir filled right on top of a Gunnison sage grouse lek. And the birds returned every single year and just tried and failed to mate on top of the ice of the reservoir. And i that's just one of the saddest stories I've ever heard. I do feel that loss. And I think, um, I think it's an important loss. And the loss of biodiversity, should it, it does feel very sad to me. And I think it concerns me quite a bit. It's a really vivid picture. Let's talk about yeah. some of the other characters in your other stories. Some of these stories trace the lives of families and three sisters, Ruth, Mano, and Teresa, who changed her name to Sister Agnes Mary when she became a nun. They're actually loosely based on your own family, right? They are. Um, my dad's mom, my granny Ruth, is. Uh, she was a, my actual grandmother. And her sister, uh, Mano, lived with her when I was young. We actually called her Grandma Aunt Mano. Uh, they have a number of other sisters, two of whom are Catholic nuns. And so the three sisters are sort of based on my remembrance of who these women were, but also who I've invented them to be. Um, there's a great photo of them, not the nuns, but uh, most of the rest of the sisters in from the late 60s or early 70s. They're in these fantastic dresses with cat eye glasses around my grandma's kitchen table, which is covered in liquor bottles and coffee mugs and jars of olives and various things. And they're just, they're probably about my age now, just middle-aged ladies having a time. And I just found them inspirational uh, in my life and also then made up stories. There's this photo that it captures that, that kind of moment for them and that moment that you can see a real personality, right? Yeah, I mean, it was like a glimpse into a side of them I didn't know, you know, that I didn't see in my grandmother as a child that made them more real for me and made me want to think about who they really were, I suppose. Oh, that's really fun. So the three of them, they care deeply about the environment, they care deeply about their families, but they care in different ways. And for Sister Agnes Mary, it comes to a head in the story, Sister Agnes Mary in the spring of 2012. Would you share some of that story? Sure. Um, the section I'm going to read from this story is when the three sisters, Ruth Mano and Sister Agnes Mary, who are all at this point in their 60s and 70s, have just discovered that there's going to be a, a natural gas drill site right behind the church school playground. 
We should call our senators, Mano says. Mano is their activist, member of the Sierra Club, avid reader of Rachel Carson and Edward Abbey, makes signs, pick at the corners. Ruth pokes sister in the ribs, then points toward the ceiling. What does your husband have to say? Ruth means God, of course. She likes to tease sister. It's lighthearted, this teasing, Ruth's love language. Sister shrugs, man a few words, she says. Mano and Ruth giggle. The silent treatment, Mano says, sounds like all three of my marriages. Maybe he thinks that after all these years, he shouldn't have to tell you what to do, Ruth says. Maybe he thinks you should just know. Well, I don't. It's maddening. Sister detangles the rosary beads from her fingers, wraps them loosely around her wrist instead. Her sisters are having fun. She tries to relax. Mano nods. That exact kind of maddening caused two of my three divorces. She can't divorce God, Ruth says. Her sisters look directly at her. Their dresses rustle. Their shifting weight makes the old kneelers settle and pop. You two, sister says, are really snagging my nits. This makes all three of them laugh. Their departed mother's favorite way to chastise them. <laughs> snagging my nits. I like that as a phrase. Thanks. <laughs> this story, it is, it's a lonely one. Sister Agnes Mary, she can't hear God's voice. And she's crosswise with church leadership. And even with kids who have grown up to be adults that she used to teach. And now they're looking to put this oil and gas leasing in her backyard. Um but there is that scene where she comes home to find her sisters halfway through a jar of olives. So you really work in that photograph that you have of your family into this story. Tell me a little bit about how their relationship kind of buoys the loneliness in the story. I mean, I think that sibling relationships are, for me, they've been really essential in my life. And I think all three of the sisters in the story managed to support each other through really difficult formative times in their lives and different stages in the collection. Um, but it's not simple. You know, they have rivalries and jealousies and they, they can say cutting things to each other. And that <laughs> rings true in terms of my experience and being part of the family. You know, there's, there's all sorts of emotions surrounding it. And I, I wanted to try to capture what that means for people throughout the course of a life, um, not just in childhood, but also through adulthood. And you drew so much from your real life. How did you balance the real life personalities and fictionalizing them? Yeah, you know what? I don't I don't really know what Ruth and Mano and uh, the, the real life sisters would think of the way I've fictionalized them. But I, I really used them the way the stories that I was trying to tell, I think I built I built my characters around those stories. Um, no one in my real family ever had a baby alone in a ghost town in Nevada. And, you know, no one ever made misunderstood protest art out of dead fish from a fish kill. Those are, you know, events that made sense in my stories that that didn't actually happen in, in real life that these somewhat real life characters um, go through. Yeah. And it is clear in reading your book that you care passionately about climate change, about caring for land and ecosystems. But in your stories, like you said, land issues are not black and white. How do you think living on a farm and in a farming community shaped the way that you have conversations and tell stories about politicized issues like oil and gas and climate change? You know, living in a rural community, you really do rely on your neighbors for a lot of things. Um, you know, when there's weather or 
you know, you just don't, you ran out of milk or something. There's just no easy way to fix even a small problem. Um, and, you know, like anywhere else, rural people are sort of all over the political spectrum, even if they do tend to trend conservative, at least in Weld County, they do. Um, but I, I guess I just, these issues are so complicated, we have to try to address them. And I think having a respectful relationship with people, um, even when you disagree with them, just helps work together. When everybody's trying to find meaningful solutions, I think it's actually fairly easy to be respectful in disagreements. Um, and that's what I found to be true when we lived out east of Greeley, for sure. And I'd love to know a little bit about what life is like after owning the farm. What part of it have you taken with you into your life since? I think no one in my family, my husband or my kids, or I would trade those years for anything. I think it gave us a sense of, you know, self-reliance and connection to the outdoors that we, you know, continue to take with us even now that we live in town for sure. Um, and I also think, you know, it was a big failure to lose the farm. Um, and we were able to recover and find our feet and, I think that has been really important moving forward, especially in writing, which is often a mm. lot of rejection, was a lot of rejection. It's just helped me push through, I think, a few things. You know, you can feel and it's not the end of the world, even if it's very public and big. <laughs> <laughs> Those are some really incredible experiences. Thank you for sharing, Claire. Thank you so much for having me. Claire Boyles lives in Loveland, Colorado. We spoke before her debut collection of short stories, Sight Fidelity, was published in June. Boyles has a book reading in Fort Collins, July 20th. Thank you for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill with special thanks to Shauna Lewis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.